Jesus Christ does not make us immune to life's trials. Now, I have to be honest here. More than once, I have scratched my head and just wondered why God, who is undeniably a good God and a loving God, a beautiful heavenly Father, why would a God like that allow heartache and persecution and sickness, financial reversals, allow us to have so much stress and worry and fear that comes into our life. And when you think about it, what's the purpose? I mean, why? When you have a trial, you have testings and these things that come into your life, I mean, it takes money that you could use for the Lord's work. It takes time that you could invest in healthy relationships or in helping others. It um, takes the strength from us, you know, and robs us of our, uh, our emotional equity. It's just, uh, there's so many things that hardships does to you. It's just plain hard on us. Well, a couple of weeks, actually a couple of months ago, I was reading uh, in my devotional reading, and I came across a verse in Psalm 11. Look at that with me, if you would, please. Psalm 11, verse 5. And as I read it, the Holy Spirit just said, here is what's going on with the trials of life. The Lord brings trials, or as David said it, the Lord trieth the righteous. Uh, The Lord tries the righteous. So as I was thinking about that and then kind of got interested in that and I think I could have rattled off a few good reasons, maybe not always uh, really believing them, but, you know, uh, what are some good reasons or benefits to trials in our life? So the more I got to thinking and praying and then studying, I realized that at least, uh, there are at least seven different purposes why God brings trials into our life. And I look forward to sharing those with you over three weeks. Last week we began with the first two, and then today another couple, and then the Lord's willing on the next Lord's Day we'll finish this series. Seven reasons, seven benefits uh, to why God brings trials into our life. Well, uh, there's all kinds of trials, and not only ones that come from, you know, financial hardships and sickness, but even persecution from the outside. And of course, never has there been a day when being a right-wing uh, Christian, evangelical Christian, has been any more of a, a challenge because there's so much out there. Well, consider this group of scientists who got together, and uh, they had decided that mankind had come such a long way, they really didn't need God anymore. And so they picked one scientist to go and tell God and said, we're really done with you. And so the tongue-in-cheek story here, the scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've done, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can clone people. We can do miraculous things. So why don't you just move on? God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. And after the scientist was done talking, God said, all right, tell you what, let's have a man-making contest. To which the man replied, well, okay, great, fine. And God added, now, we're going to do just 
just like I did back in the old days with Adam. A scientist said, sure, no problem. Bent down and grabbed up a handful of dirt, and God looked at him and said, oh, no, 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 no. You got to get your own dirt. (laughs) There you go. Yep. Maybe they're not as smart as they think they are. Well, trials come from all angles, don't they? Well, let's uh, ask God's wisdom on the message today. Father, we thank you for this wonderful Sunday morning that we can gather together in the Lord's house. Thank you for this beautiful campus and facility. Lord, so many people work so hard and give so much so that we can come. Thank you for our country, Lord, that we can still worship in freedom. And I pray that you preserve those freedoms for us, Lord. And I pray, God, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us today. Enlighten our eyes, Lord, rejoice, rejoice our hearts. Make wise the simple, Lord, we need you. And convert souls, we pray. Amen. What are the reasons for trials in our life? Last week we talked about at least two of them. One of them was that they reveal areas of weakness. It's good to take a personal inventory, isn't it? See what's in the cupboard. Because there's going to come a time we're going to need some goods. We're going to need the stuff. And if you don't uh, have it in the cupboard, it's, it's gonna, we're going to starve to death. They come to reveal weak links in our life, deficiencies. That left unchecked can be some serious problems. You know, we go through trials now because sometimes God lets us experience small failures, maybe He wises up so that we won't experience big ones in the future. And so it's wonderful how God actually brings these into our life to expose weaknesses. There's a second reason why trials come into our life, and that is to repress attitudes of pride. Everybody has a problem with pride, everybody. You say, well, I don't. Yes, you do. You just showed that you do right there. And uh, all of us. I mean, we, my area of pride may not be what yours is. And, uh, you know, uh, you may have an area of pride about your looks or it may be about your, you know, money or, or your athletic ability or, you know, or that you're just a cool person. I don't know. But the fact is, all of us have problems with pride. And so, Uh, And pride is the one sin that God can't forgive because the Bible says he resists pride. And that doesn't mean he won't forgive pride. It just means that because of pride, he turns from us. And so until we get humble, he can't deal with us because God won't deal with a proud person. He gives grace to the humble, but he brings the law down on the proud. And so uh, we need pride to just get, we just need to get rid of it. And uh, sometimes God has to pound on us and be nice if we could just get it the first time. But oftentimes we just have to, it comes down on us and comes down on us and comes down on us. And finally, uh, God works that pride over. I quoted a little quote that said, faith keeps us strong, trials keep us humble, flaws keep us human, but God keeps us going. And it's so true. Well, let's talk about uh, the third and fourth one here today. First, number three, uh, trials remove dependency on this world. They remove our dependency to get our joy and to get our kicks and to get all of our fun out of this world. As Scripture says, it weans us from the world. It separates us. In, In a sense, we become divorced from the world. We are absolutely uh, married to the things of this world. Let's go to Psalm 13 and verse number 2, if you would, please. Psalm 13 and verse 2. 
Are you there? All right, good. Let's read it together out loud. Ready? Begin. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned from his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Now, what does it mean to be a weaned child? Well, I think every adult in this room knows what it means when a child becomes weaned from the breast or weaned from the bottle. But uh, in a spiritual sense or um, in a mystical sense, what are we talking about here? First of all, let me say what it's not talking about. God is not saying that uh, He's going to wean us from the comforts of this world. The fact is, it is possible to have very much of this world. It is possible to be very wealthy or to have just a, a very comfortable lifestyle and still not be just captured by the world. A person like that was David. In fact, these words came from David himself. He said, you know, I've come to the point where I'm just weaned from the world. Here he was. He was a great man, a godly man. And yet he realized that his soul needed weaning. And he was thankful that God had just basically made him indifferent to the things of the world. It was just, um, you know, whether it came good, if it didn't come, no big deal. So first of all, to be weaned from the world doesn't mean to not have the comforts of the world. To be weaned from the world, second of all, doesn't mean to undervalue this world. I mean, the fact is, if uh, you gave me a, a choice whether I'd rather get in my 58 Volkswagen and drive to L.A. or to get in a nice, uh, brand new 2017 car with air conditioning, which would you enjoy more on your trip down to L.A.? Well, I will tell you right now, I'll guarantee it at which one I would pick. That old Volkswagen, it's uh, maybe cute, but it beats you to death. An hour after you've been on that thing, you need to go lay down. And, um, so uh, I value comfortable cars. I value air conditioning. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, I'll go anywhere as long as they got air conditioning. Right, Felix? And uh, I told Brother Del Rosario, you get air conditioning, I'll visit you. If you don't, you're going to have to win them on your own. And uh, um, the, uh, when we went to the South Pacific Island there, uh, Vanuatu, uh, the uh, missionary, a young man, very excited, and uh, he said, whoa, we'll just hike up into that mountain, into that village, and we'll preach the gospel to him. I said, you can hike up that mountain to the village, but I said, I'm not hiking up that mountain. He laughed. He said, yeah, my home pastor said the same thing. He said, if you want me to preach the gospel to them, you got to go get them and bring them down the mountain. And uh, he said, that's exactly what I did. I, I brought him down to the bottom of the mountain. He preached to him. <laughs> I said, amen. That's what I'm telling you right now. I'll win them to Jesus, but you, they're going to have to come here. And so I enjoy nice things. I enjoy air conditioning. I enjoy the comforts of this world. So to be weaned from the world doesn't mean that you know, you don't enjoy a comfortable lifestyle. Nothing wrong with the comforts of life. What does it mean? Well, the picture here. Jesus, uh, David was saying, here's what God has done for me. God has weaned me from the need for the world. Now, I'd not uh, have a problem being comfortable, but I also, like Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state to find a sense of contentment. If I have, good. If I don't have, well, I find a way to be content with that. But he said, God has got me to that place. Now, it used to be 
Boy, if I didn't have the world, I wasn't happy. But now, honestly, it doesn't, God has just weaned me from that. And he uses the illustration of a baby being weaned from being breastfed. Now, in the ancient days, uh, they would take something bitter, uh, something unpleasant, nothing that would hurt the child, but something unpleasant, and then they would rub it on the breast. And when that baby would try to latch on, oh, boy, that's just terrible. They would do that a little bit, and pretty soon that baby would uh, not want the breast anymore. And so, of course, in the meantime, that baby would think they were going to die. Now, of course, they would give them liquids. They would, you know, make sure that they had plenty to eat. But boy, in the meantime, you would have thought that you broke their heart. You're killing that baby, you know. But for two or three days, that baby would just have the worst time of their life. But they needed to go through that. They had to be weaned so that they could move on, so that they could get to a better part of their life. Now, when mankind fell in the Garden of Eden, they turned from God to the world. That was the turn. Adam and Eve had this wonderful fellowship with God. Every day they would talk with God. Every day they would sing to God. They would have they had this beautiful relationship. And then they messed it up. And you and I would have messed it up too, but they did. They just messed it up. They ate from the world. They lived in the world. They loved the world. And so they became lost. Their soul died. And from that point forward, everybody that's born is born with a love for the world and a hatred for God. Nobody is born with a love for God. Everybody is born with a hatred for God and a love for the world. And so we grow up loving the world. We grow up just wanting the world. I mean, we want stuff. We want food. We want pleasure. We want fun. You name it. That's what we want. We just, that's, that's, we're, we're married to it. When a person gets saved, God says the greatest miracle is when a person gets born again. Far more of a change than actually from death, from life to death. I mean, it is a bigger change to be converted by the grace of God than it is to simply die and go to heaven or to hell. Because this transformation is a miracle. It is a miracle of God that God comes into us. He then gives us a love for God. God in me loves holy things. And all of a sudden, I have a new, uh, I have a new taste for things. That's called being saved. We know that. A bigger word is being then sanctified or made into a saint or as it were, from the scripture sense, or made holy. Now, let me just tell you, the transition from, uh, from sinner to saint is no easy transition. <laughs> that is a process. Now, salvation may be an event. It's certainly not a process, and people confuse that. They think, you know, I'm, I, I get saved over the years. No, salvation is an event sanctification is a process. And that process is not an easy process. It is the process of being weaned from the world. It is growing up to maturity. It is watching God rub bitter things on that which we have been drinking from. 
We got all of our joy from sports. We got all of our joy from dancing and drinking. We got all of our joy from our success. We got all of our joy from our educational achievements. We got all of our joy from some person. And then God rubs something bitter on that to wean us. Why? Because he said, you need to grow. You can't just keep sucking on the bottle all your life. You, You need to mature. You need to become seasoned. There was an old violin maker that explained why his violins had such amazing quality. He said they were made from a certain kind of a tree from Europe, but not just any tree and not just any tree in the forest. The tree in this particular forest uh, has to be one that comes from a solitary tree, one that kind of grows on a hillside by itself, not sheltered by the other trees. This particular trees have to be one that the wind has twisted it, the sun has baked it, where its roots aren't able to go down very deeply. But because of that, the tree just is made so strong and so incredible resilient. When you make a violin out of that kind of a tree, it is of uh, insurpassable quality. And that's what God is doing. He's using the the winds of adversity and the baking of temptation. He's bringing it all into our lives so that we'll become like a beautiful violin. I think a great example here is the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, verse number 14, the Bible says he had spent all. He took everything from his dad and he just ran out into the world. He said, Dad, I am done with you. This is ridiculous. All the rules, all the junk. I want to have some fun. Off into the world he went. The world just looked so fun to him. But then, as it happens, he spent it all. They're not too smart to do that in the first place, but then to go out and spend it all, that's even, even more ridiculous. But notice what it says. When he had spent all, then there arose a famine, Then in the next few verses, it says that he looked back at his father's house and said, there's more food in my father's house. And specifically, he said, there's joy in the father's house. And you know, it was the famine that brought him home to the father's house. It was the trials. It was the weaning process. It was the process where God said, you know what? I am going to rub all kinds of bitter things on your lust for the world. That's why Christians can't go into the world and enjoy it. I mean, lost people, they'll just have a big time out in the world. Boy, they'd just be drinking all the time and just having partying, you know, and anything, you know, drugs, whatever. I mean, just, let's just party it. They have a great time. Of course, the next day, they don't, not real happy. But I mean, honestly, at the time, they're just as happy as they can be. The Christians are not. A real sanctified Christian, someone who's saved by the blood of Jesus, they can't, they're out there in the world trying to have fun, and it just It doesn't do it. It just doesn't work. Like one well-known Christian author said, God is never better to us than when the world is most bitter to us. There's another great illustration, from this time from the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a preacher, was a prophet, and in a very unique uh, family situation. He had married a woman who had a very bad past, and she uh, tried to get away from it, but it just uh, creeped back up onto her. And uh, she ended up leaving him. She ended up becoming basically a prostitute. It was a terrible blow to him and to his family. And so God said, here's what I'm going to do. And 
in all of that, God used the, this story to talk about how he was going to deal with Israel. And so Hosea chapter 2 and verse 6, here's what he said. Now, speaking about his wife, but really referring in a bigger way to Israel. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns. I will make a wall so that she shall not find her paths. God said, I'm just going to bring thorns into her life. I'm just going to bring all kinds of trials and troubles and heartaches and issues and problems so that maybe she'll get the idea that this is not good. And if you've ever walked through thorns, we have some raspberry bushes on the bank there where we live, a little creek. And boy, I tell you what, those blackberries look so delicious. But I'm telling you, if you try to get any of those things, you better have a 10-foot pole because you can't even get close to one of those things without grabbing your arm and It just rips your clothes. It's just terrible. Thorns are no fun. And then if thorns don't work, notice what he said. He said, I'll just put up a wall. I mean, just run into a wall. And that's what God said, I'm going to do for Israel. I'm going to thorn their way. I'm going to just put walls in their path so that maybe they will come back to me. Verse 7, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she'll not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she'll not find them. Then she shall say, I'll go and return to my first husband. For then it was better with me than now. And that's what God does. Our disappointments in the pursuit of the creation leads us back to the creator. It makes us go back to the one who really loved us in the beginning. The one who our first love is. It is said that Thomas Edison's manufacturing facilities in 1914 burned almost to the ground. They're heavily damaged, lost at that time almost a million dollars of equipment, records of all of his work. The next morning, this great inventor, statesman, walking around all the charred embers, all of his hopes and dreams up in smoke, 67-year-old inventor said this. He said, you know, there's actually value in disaster. All of our mistakes are burned up too. And now we can start all over again. And you know, trials do have a purging effect in our life. And that's what God said here. I'm going to put something in your way so that you'll get back on the path. And that you'll say, you know what? This world doesn't mean anything to me. I think another good example is Balaam, another preacher. This particular preacher was so used of God. He had the ability to just... um, When he would say something, God would just move in a great way. For some reason, he would just, God would just bless him. And whenever he would bless something, that thing would prosper. And whenever he just put out a cursing on something, boy, that thing would just wither away. He had this amazing ability. Well, apparently it went to his head, whatever the case was, but God needed to bring uh, Balaam back in the way. And so what did he do? He put an angel in the way. And Scripture says to hinder him. Have you ever been hindered in something and you wondered, why is there so much hindering? That's because perhaps God is saying, you know what, I'm hindering you so that I can uh, keep you from these things, so that I can guide you, so that I can make you a different person, so that I can wean you from this world. God was trying to, and the whole deal with Balaam was, the, the king of Moab offered him all this money, offered him all this worldly stuff. And Balaam said, well, man, if you'll give me that, I'll be your little 
paid preacher. Boy, I mean, I'll just, you know, and you know, that's a terrible day when a pastor only preaches for money. That's just going to be a bad day for the church. You want to have a man of God up there. You want to have somebody who is free to say it like it is and say it like we need it. And so, uh, amen. And so there's old Balaam and this preacher was paying his salary. I mean, this the king was paying his salary and Balaam felt obliged to him. I mean, it was a terrible situation. And so God put an angel in his way to hinder him. And of course, you know the story. He, his donkey saw the angel first. <laughs> you know we're in a bad shape when our animal sees God before we do. And uh, his donkey saw the angel and then Balaam ends up having a conversation with his donkey. And uh, it's a great story. I love that story. But uh, the fact is, you know what? God had to bring him back to a place where the world didn't mean anything to him. Sometimes, I don't know if you're like this, but I feel like the story that Charles Swindoll told, a great author, he told about a parakeet named Chippy. Maybe you've heard the story. Chippy's owner decided to clean his cage. And only thing was, it probably wasn't too smart, but decided to clean it with a vacuum cleaner. And she was almost finished cleaning the cage when the telephone rang. She turned around to answer it, and before she knew it, Chippy was gone. In a panic, she opened up the vacuum bag, and there was little Chippy, all covered in dirt, gasping for air. She carried him to the bathroom, rinsed him off under the faucet, and then realized that Chippy was cold and wet, and then went and got her hair dryer and started blowing little Chippy like that. Boy, this little poor little parakeet didn't know what hit it. A few days later, she was asked how Chippy was, and she said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits there and stares. <laughs> Have you ever felt like Chippy? Amen. You get sucked up in a vacuum cleaner, and then pretty soon you get hair blown, and I mean, he's like, man, alive. What happened to me? I feel like in a whirlwind, and that's what happens. Well, God is weaning us. When a child is weaned from the breast, it is given a new sense of nourishment and a new place for food. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 32. He said, I have food that you don't know anything about. Now, when a believer gets saved and then gets sanctified and begins to love the Word of God, there is nothing like it. Just nothing like it. You can put a, you take a baby that's been weaned and you can put a full bottle of the best milk next to that baby, and that baby just looks at that milk and reaches over and wants food. Of course, mamas a lot of times are brokenhearted, you know, the baby doesn't love me anymore. But, you know, the fact is that little baby has moved on to something far more nutritious and something better for it. And as committed Christians, we need to leave the bottle of this world and we need to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and on His Word and something far better than the milk of this world and say, you know what? I've left that. I've got something to eat you don't know nothing, you know nothing of. That's what David said in Psalm 73. He said, I don't know about anybody else, but I don't have anybody but you. And I desire nothing on earth but you. Isn't that an amazing statement? I desire nothing on earth but you. As I said earlier, it didn't mean that he didn't enjoy nice things. It didn't mean that he wasn't wealthy. He was very wealthy. He just said, he just had a, he hadn't been able to put it into perspective. If he had it, good. If he didn't have it, whatever. Because what he desired was God. 
when my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Have you noticed that each year you live as a Christian, you get more things, you accumulate more stuff, we get more furniture, you know, most people's garages, you can't even hardly get into those things. There's just stuff stacked everywhere. Our rooms and our closets are like disaster areas. It says so much stuff. We have cars sitting around. We have uh, our accolades and our accomplishments. We have jobs. We have bank accounts. We have success. Houses, vacation houses, we, you name it, we have all these things. Been here, done that. Have you noticed as you go on in life, that the older you get, the less significance they have for you. It's like, you know what? It's like, I mean, at first I used to think, boy, if I could just have this, if I could just have that, and then I got it. And then it just really didn't, it didn't mean that much to me anymore. It just, it's funny how I've come to the place where, you know, I just, it just doesn't mean that much anymore to me. And that's that weaning process. God is getting us to a point where he weans us, and he, he says, you know what? You just need to get to the point where this world just doesn't attract you anymore. And that's why God brings trials into our life. One of the real ways he's doing is he is just putting bitterness on the things that we want so bad in our mouth so that we'll say, you know what? There's something better. There's something far better. And that's what trials do. Trials get us to a point where we realize, you know what? The only thing I really need is Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Just give me the Lord. Just give me my Bible and let me have some time worshiping the Lord. And I'll just sit there with a cup of coffee and I don't have to have much, boy, if I just read my Bible and talk to the Lord. As long as I have an In-N-Out burger, I'm good. Amen. Yeah. Give me a couple bucks. Number four, not only do trials reveal areas of weakness, not only do trials repress attitudes of pride and trials remove dependency on this world, but they relay whom we really love. It shows who we love. You know, trials have a way of bringing to light who we love. It uncovers and lays bare the deepest affection of our heart. Could anything be more dear than Isaac to Abraham? Here he is. He's an older man. That just, as you get older, you you just uh, so appreciate those children and grandchildren, I think, so much the more. Here he was, an old man, really. This was the son that he had always prayed for and hoped for. This was the son of the promise that God had told him. And yet Abraham must find out, God knew, but Abraham must find out who did he love most, God or Isaac? Did he love God and his plan and his promises, or did he love Isaac? And that's what trials do. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And I know that Abraham had a promise, and the book of Hebrews 11 says that he believed a promise that God would bring him to life. But even with that, you got to know that was a terrible moment when he held that knife above his own son, and God stopped him. An angel came and said, now I know. Now you know. Now God already knew, but he was trying to get Abraham to the point where he realized, who did he love most? How do you know if you love God most? Here's two practical questions. You can write these down because they are 
They'll get inside your craw and work you over a little bit. They're not easy questions. Here are two practical questions that will help you know whom you love most. The first question is, what do you think about most? What do you think about most? Do you think about the verses that you read this morning? Do you think about ways to serve the Lord? And I mean, it's not like you have to all your time think about the Lord, but the fact is, if you never think about God and His Word and His ways, that's a problem. What do you think about most? And the second question perhaps is even more challenging, and that is, where does your money go first? I've often said, you don't have to tell me what kind of a Christian you are. Just give me your checkbook. I'll tell you what kind of Christian you are. That's just as simple as that. The fact is, if you don't give to the Lord's work, if you don't give that first tenth, people say, well, I, uh, what is tithing? Tithing is not only giving a tenth, but it is giving it first. That's the first thing that comes out. What do you think about the most? And where does your money go first? Now, everybody can say whatever you want to, but over 40 years of ministry, I know the facts. Your checkbook already tells me where your heart is. Just, you can say whatever you want. You can have all your little theological arguments, but I know. I just know. I've been around. I've just, you ask any preacher who has been around, they'll tell you. They know the facts. What do you think about most? And where does your money go first? And those two things will tell you whom you love. Now, God has eternal rewards if you pass this test. Notice what he says in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, for when he is tried, for when he goes through trials, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, a crown of life is probably a heavenly reward. It is most likely some reward that is acquired through a faithful life, but not actually gotten until we get to heaven. But I think it's also a symbol of all that God wants to do in our life, a crown. A crown is something that doesn't make us a king, but it definitely displays that we are. And the favor and the blessings and the rewards that God wants to put upon our life, I think, become a crown. That God's hand and God's favor is on us. And that's what God wants to do. God wants us to give us these rewards, but in order to have those, there's a struggle. He's not just, he doesn't just pass out those rewards willy-nilly. A moth is a, an amazing creature. And some of the moths are just incredibly beautiful. I saw a moth on our little country home over there the other day. I mean, and tell you, that thing is so beautiful at the same time. It looked like something from, from the prehistoric days. Unbelievable. But a moth goes through quite a metamorphosis. It's inside of a cocoon. And it takes hours for that moth to finally break its way out of the cocoon. Entomologists explain that the pressure that the moth is subjected to is what forces life into the wings so that it can actually fly. One of the observers who was watching these moths decided that he would help the little moth and kind of took a small little tweezers and kind of 
peeled away the little uh, cocoon there, thinking that, you know, make it easier for this little moth. Sad thing was, the little moth, when it came out of there, it lived for a time, but it never was able to fly because it was the struggle that made those wings the ability to fly. You know, the struggles of childbirth, for example, the child squeezing through the birth canal. It is God's designed way of forcing liquid out of that newborn's lungs. Everything that's good in life is birthed with travail. Sorrow, sufferings, trials, tribulations, they're all designed to purify our love for God. And that's what Jesus told the disciples and others. In Luke chapter 14, he said, you know, if you want to come to me, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sister. In fact, you've got to hate your own life or you cannot be my disciple. Now, every good man loves his wife. Every good wife loves her husband. Every good father loves his children. Every good mother loves their children. We love our parents. We love our relations. We love people around us. And of course, that's the way it ought to be. Yet what Christ was saying here is this. If you're going to become a disciple of Christ, your love for God ought to be so much greater that if you were to put the love of your, that you have for your wife, for your husband, or for your children, if you would put that next to your love for God, it would seem as hate. It would be such a great distance between the two. There's not, you know, God, family, God, family. No, your love for God ought to be so much greater than anything else. And the fact is, when we love God, we love our family more. That's the amazing thing. When we love God, we end up loving and having better relationships. But when our relationships are in competition with our duty to Christ, we must always say, Jesus, you are first. It is said that Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was at one time the director of the China Inland Mission. As a director of the China Inland Mission, he would interview candidates who wanted to come to the mission field. When he interviewed them, he would ask them questions like, why do you want to go to the foreign fields as a missionary? He would get predictable and good answers, certainly not bad answers. One would say something like, because Christ has commanded us to go to all the world. Another said, I want to come to China because there are millions of Chinese people that are lost, and I want to give them Christ. And others gave other good answers. And Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said, all of these actually are good answers. But he said, I will tell you this, if that's why you're a missionary, in times of trial, you will fail. Because he said, I will tell you, there's only one motive that will keep you going forever. And that is a love for Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens then, you'll keep going. If, if it's numbers you want, you, as long as you got numbers, you'll be happy. If it is souls that you want, as long as you have souls, you'll be happy. But if you love Jesus Christ, you'll always stay in the work. You know, in our lives, we are all tested. And as a Christian, we go through trials. God's trying to make us aware of areas of weakness, or He's trying to bring up things about our life that we need to be careful about. Maybe we're proud about something. God's trying to warn us. He's trying to wean us from this world. And He's trying to purify our love. What do we really love? Who do we really love? 
One of the great hymn writers of our hymn book is Charlotte Elliott. Charlotte Elliott is one who wrote the wonderful hymn, Just As I Am. Charlotte Elliott, however, didn't start out as a good hymn writer. She actually had developed a long history. She was from England. She had developed a long history of just making excuses about everything. Pretty much whatever she was asked to do for God, she refused. She just, she was not feeling good or was tired or you know, whatever. Her brother was a pastor and is very persistent. He tried to get her involved, tried to get her to do something to serve God. On one particular occasion, he said, would you come? We're going to open a home for girls. Would you just come and be part of the celebration? And would you come and be there to help? Again, she just gave her excuses. Say, I don't feel good. I'm tired. I, you know, you name it. She always had excuses. They all said, okay, fine. They left her, went off to the service, and she was all alone. And while she was there, all alone in her home, she began to realize she had spent her life making excuses why she couldn't serve God. She knelt before God and said, God, I'm so sorry. And she wrote these words. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not, just as I am with many a conflict and many a doubt, just as I am poor, wretched, blind, just as I come, just as I am, I'm coming. Basically, she was saying, Lord, I'm a mess, but I'm coming. Lord, I'm a mess, but no more excuses. All the trials, all the junks that have been in my life, they're supposed to be stepping stones, not barriers. They're supposed to make me stronger. They're supposed to make me more humble. They're supposed to make me closer to you. And I've been using them as excuses. God, I come. I come. And I wonder how many of you would say this morning, Lord, I've been using excuses. But whatever I can, whatever I do, I come. I come today. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed.